Increasingly, atheists are becoming more and more evangelistic than Christians are. And I say that not for the purpose of shame, but for the purpose of awakening you. Awakening you. That not only in our day, it's particularly in the West and in the secular West, does it seem as though atheists are becoming more evangelistic than Christians, but it seems as though that atheists are better studied and more committed to their cause than Christians very often are. And so I resolve, brothers and sisters, that in our church, then we will buck the trends that are around us. It is the trend in our day that churches should go shallower and that churches should appeal to the hedonistic culture so that we might draw in our thousands. But I tell you that as cultural Christianity dies, those churches will die with it because there will be no benefit to it. But instead, we should endeavor to love Jesus Christ, not just with all of our hearts, not just with all of our strength, but with all of our minds. And with that, go deeper, not shallower, so that our church will not die in this generation, but will stand firm for generations to come. That we have to present a faith that is not cold, that is not simply intellectual, but at the very same time of faith that does not check its mind at the door. Listen to what Richard Dawkins said. Richard Dawkins is who, one of the men who is considered among the four horsemen of the new atheism movement. He is an evangelistic atheist. He says this, he says, Religion is capable of driving people to such dangerous folly that faith seems to me to qualify as a kind of mental illness. Let me read that quote again. Religion is capable of, of driving people to such dangerous folly that faith seems to me to qualify as a kind of mental illness. Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Oxford in England. He has a PhD from the University of Oxford in England. And so maybe your response to that would be, well, I dismiss him outright. That's outlandish. That's crazy. And, and I agree with you that he's not right. And that is a foolish statement. But as hard as that is for us to hear, and as quickly as perhaps we want to dismiss him and put that aside, our children are the ones that won't. And he's not worried about you anyway. He's not coming for you. He's not talking to you. He's talking to your children. He's talking to your grandchildren. He's talking to those that are coming after us. And the way that I know that is I am one of them. I am one of them. You see, I graduated from White Plains High School. And I grew up in this church. I got my bachelor's degree from Jacksonville State University. If there was ever a child of our church and of our community, I am the prototype. 
And yet I had a crisis of faith that my parents don't know about, that Megan doesn't know about, that you don't know about, that I experienced while on the campus of Jacksonville State University that was profound and difficult for me. I had always kind of been warned on the front end about these angry professors that would come after my faith and discredit my faith and would tell me all of these things, but I was not particularly prepared for it. And so I, one day I was taking a geology class with a man named Dr. Kelly Gregg. And Dr. Gregg, we were in there and we had these books, and he started talking about all of these ge geological structures and the formation of the earth and the way things came about. And let me tell you something, to use a geological pun, it rocked my world, right? Some of y'all get that later. <laughs> but you know what really rocked my world? Kelly Gregg was not this mean-spirited, angry grouchy, grumpy professor that didn't care about anybody. He was a sweet, or probably still is, a sweet, kind, well-intentioned man. And he talked about all of these things and all of these processes. And I sat there and I realized, listening to classmates talk, listening to him talk, that my worldview and his worldview and his worldview was much better articulated than my worldview, that they couldn't, they, they weren't cohesive. They couldn't come together. And yet he was able to articulate his worldview and my classmates were able to articulate their worldview in a way that I, who was a leader in my church, a lead at the church more than any, perhaps anybody else in the youth ministry history was ever in the youth ministry, was ever there. And they were able to articulate it in ways that I was not able to articulate it. And I was sitting there in a moment and I was afraid to open up my book because I was was afraid of opening up that geology book was going to completely discredit my entire belief system. And I like to think of myself as a thinking person and a person that asks big questions. And so I sat there in Dr. Gregg's class trying to figure out whether or not what I was believing was a lie. And whether or not what I had committed my life to was a lie. At 18, 19 years old. So the things that we're talking about, brothers and sisters, this is not small stuff. This is not small potatoes. And it's easy for us to glaze over and it's easy for us to get in the motions of Sunday after Sunday. And it's easy for us to go through our routines and go through our families and do our stuff. But let me tell you, a day of reckoning is coming to your house. It's coming to your house. Right now, I've got little girls, two and five, but a day of reckoning is coming to their fate. You have grandchildren, a day of reckoning is coming to their faith. So there's a big question. There's a big question that's being asked in the broader intellectual community right now. 
And really, it's, it's not really even seemingly being asked. It's being just spoken to us, right? That science disproves the Bible. So let's ask that question together. Let's ask that question together. I wish we had more time, but let, let's just ask the question today. Does science disprove the Bible? And I think there's a, there's a bigger question in play, and that is, can Christians be thinking people? Can Christians be thinking people? Or must we check our minds at the door as we come in to sing our songs? Turn with me now to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. (coughs) When you get to Romans chapter one, if you would just stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. Romans chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 18. We'll read through verse 25 together. God's word says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. You know, the thing about men and mankind is men like answers. And maybe more than men like answers is men like already having the answers. In our house, I'm kind of the answer man, right? Like I'm trivia guy in our house. And so in our house, I'm the answer man and Gracie Kate is question girl, right? Like I'm answer man and Gracie Kate's question girl. And if I'm honest with you, I kind of like having the status in our house as being answer man. And uh, so I I like being the guy that knows what the weather's gonna do. It's like I have these predictive powers in our house um, where, where everybody comes... Father, what will the weather do tomorrow? Well, let me tell you what the weather will do tomorrow, you know? And it's like I have these remarkable superpowers to tell you what the weather's going to do and whether or not you can wear a dress or not tomorrow. It's really a pretty cool thing. I like being able to tell her why 
David killed Goliath and how David killed Goliath. I like being able to tell her and explain to her why flowers need the sun because as many questions as she has, I like being able to have the answers. And sometimes she doesn't know it, but sometimes I just make stuff up that sounds cool to me, you know? Uh, because she, she doesn't really know any different. And so sometimes I, I, I exaggerate a little bit because she doesn't really know any better. And, uh, and sometimes she just goes around thinking, man, man, my dad is so cool. And my dad is so smart. And if you go right now to the, across the road, across the way to the kids praise and you ask Gracie Gate, who's the smartest person that you know, she will say, it is my daddy. Because in our house, I'm the answer man. But that's really kind of a metaphor of who we like to be, isn't it? That's a metaphor of who we like to be. We like to be wise. We like to consider ourselves wise. We like to believe that we have the answers to life's questions. Maybe we would be at least too humble to say it out loud, but we like to, to have people gathered around and to kind of say, well, I tell you what I think, right? It, that's kind of a famous human slogan, right? I tell you what I think. Or we'll, we'll get our grandson and we'll put him up on our knee and we'll say, well, listen, I know what he says, he says, he says, I know what the preacher says, I know what the Bible says, but here's what granddad thinks, right? Or, or we'll, say, we'll say, look, here's what mom and dad think. Everybody else says something different, but here's what mom and dad think, right? So what are we saying? We have the answers. We have wisdom. We like to be in that kind of position. And very often, in, in virtually every family that I've ever known, there are some, some, some forms of wisdom or, or lack thereof, perhaps, where we posit ourselves or, or position ourselves against everybody else's wisdom, right? Where, where, where we kind of put ourselves at odds with everybody else, where we are basically saying, <clears throat> I have an answer that nobody else has because we like to be the answer people. Well, if you think about it, very, that, that, that's really the position that modern science has put itself in. That, that's the role that modern science has begun to, to play in our society. That modern science has come to the table and they have said, look, we can explain everything. Every question that you've ever had, every thought that you've ever had, every, every, every conundrum that you've ever considered, we can explain it all. When they've thought about God, they've mostly thought about a God of the gaps. They've not thought about a comprehensive God of everything. They've thought about a God of the gaps, a God that just kind of explains all the stuff that we can't explain. Not a God that assigns meaning and purpose and significance to everything, but rather a God of gaps, a God of the inexplicable. And so what modern science often is seeking to do is to come in and naturally explain away all of those gaps and fill in with wisdom all of the gaps so that now we can have some kind of rational, reasonable explanation in our minds or scientific, sophisticated explanation for every gap. And then if we can fill in all of the gaps, then we have the ability to eliminate God. We can get rid of God because God is just a God of the gaps to begin with, right? 
And so what Paul would say is that these men are seeking to become wise. These men are seeking to achieve the greatest wisdom. These men are seeking to be the most brilliant. And in seeking to be wise, they have become fools. And seeking to discover greater truth, they have missed the most obvious truth. And seeking to discover truths that no other man can see, they have begun to, they've missed truth that even a child is able to discern. That seeking to become wise, they themselves have become fools. And so he appeals to the, to the, what we would call the general revelation, the creation, right? So in, in, there's two ways that God has revealed himself to us. God has revealed himself to us generally, and God has revealed himself, sometimes my voice gets a little squeaky right now. So you guys have to, I met a friend at T4G at this conference we were at last week that I had not seen in a long time. And so he comes running up up to me. I said, and and so like just squeaks came out. So just, just, just be with me here. Uh, Bear with me here. And so, um, so God has revealed himself with me two different ways, two different uh, ways, generally and specifically. Specifically, God has revealed himself through his word, right? God has spoken very specifically to say, thus is who I am. This is me. This is how you can know me. This is how you can be right with me. This is how you can be reconciled to me. This is who you are. This is what the issue is with who you are. This is how you can overcome your condition through Christ, right? So God has revealed himself specifically. Aaron read Psalm 19. We see these two types of revelations side by side with one another. But Paul doesn't appeal to that. He appeals to the way that God has revealed to himself generally. And how has God revealed himself generally? Through the creation, right? Through the creation. And what's cool about the way that God has revealed himself generally is it doesn't matter what language that you speak. It doesn't matter where you go to bed at night, whether it's in the Middle East or it's in Alabama or it's in Africa or it's in Russia. It doesn't matter what part of the earth that you're on. It doesn't matter whether you're four years old or you're 40 years old or you're 100 years old. It doesn't matter whether you're broke or you're wealthy. It doesn't matter what kind of limitations you have. It doesn't matter any of those things. When you look up to the sky, you see the same stars. When you go to the beach, you see the same ocean waves. When you wake up in the morning, the same sun is rising. In the evening, the same sun is setting. And the the same kind of rain falls against your face. The same kind of wind moves your hair. It is the same creation that all of us encounter. And Paul is saying that it is in that creation that God reveals himself so much so that every man and woman, image bearers of Almighty God, ought to be able to look at that creation and see how orderly it is and how beautiful it is and how immense it is and how spectacular it is and say, praise be to God. Praise be to the creator. That God has revealed himself into the creator, into the creation, so much so that every man and woman, every child of account can look to that so much so that they are without excuse when they stand before him, whether they have heard of Christ or not. So what's the problem? 
What's the problem? In verse 18, he says, we as sinners suppress the truth. We suppress the truth about God. We suppress the truth. In verse 21, let's, let's read verse 21 together. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's what he says. What happens is, is that sin darkens the, darkens the heart and clouds the mind. That, that, that sin actually begins to affect, that sin actually affects our reason. That you understand that in Genesis chapter three, that when the creation comes under the curse as a result of the brokenness of man and all of the creation is subjected to futility, that it, it's not just the earth and it's not just the flesh of your body that is affected, but it is your mind as well. So much so that your ability to use sound logic and good rationale is now fatally flawed. So much so that a person, a, a rational human being, is able to do something totally irrational all while believing it to be rational. I bet, now look, maybe I, don't, maybe I just don't know you well. Maybe as your pastor, I just don't know you as well as I, I think I do. But I bet that if you look over the course of your life, you can think of some instances in your life in which you did something that was totally irrational that in the moment you believed was rational. I, I bet there, has been time, there have been times in your life in which you did something that was totally foolish, but while you were doing it, you thought it was a wise thing to do. I can think back to one time when we were fixing to have Gracie Kate, and I was just in like total daddy freak out mode, right? Like new daddy, gonna be new daddy. You know, my kid's gonna starve to death. I don't know how to provide for my kid. What's gonna happen? <coughs> and if you're a new dad, if you've been a new daddy and you're saying you didn't do that, you're a liar, okay? And, uh, and so I was like in new daddy freak out mode. And so I just started selling everything I had. I started selling everything that I had. And, and in my mind, this was perfectly rational. All right. So one of the things that I was going to sell is I was going to sell my truck. And I think it was going to save like $75 a month or something like that um, to sell my truck. And I was going to get one that was like way inferior, not dependable, you know, that I was going to be taking this little creature around in. Brilliant, right? And, and so, but in my mind, it was totally rational, totally reasonable, completely wise. I was doing what I needed to do, all of that stuff. The baby comes, you know, and I think back and I thought, man, I, my car keeps breaking. You know, like, like, what's happening here, right? And you look back and you think, that was foolish. That was crazy. That was irrational. I was not using sound mind. But why do we do things like that? Because our minds have been affected by the brokenness of the world. So much so that we can do irrational things all while believing them to be irrational. And this is the fatal flaw of new atheism. This is the fatal flaw of new atheism. New atheism presents itself as being the only rational way, but new atheism is in and of itself a totally irrational 
worldview. It is naturalism. And what naturalism is, is naturalism is a faith system. It is a religious system. Whether, whatever it wants to call it, is a religious system that tries to explain the origins of the universe, the ways of the world, without any means of supernatural or moral system. It is to explain everything that you see by natural, natural processes and to drain it of anything moral and anything supernatural. And it, in and of itself, requires faith, right? And somebody that's helped me a lot with this is a man named Dr. John Lennox, because what he helps you to see is help, he helps you kind of look beneath the surface and a lot of the arguments that they make and to realize, man, these are straw man arguments. These are straw man arguments. So, so Dr. John Lennox, he's a, he's a neat guy. So he's a, he's a very gifted apologist. And he himself, like Richard Dawkins, is actually a mathematician at the University of Oxford. And he has a PhD from the University of Oxford. And he, early in his career, he was told, Lennox, if you're going to be a gifted, if you're going to actually have a career in this field, you're going to have to give up this, this fantasy of religion. And he said, I was, I was, I was terrified, you know, I, just, I want to be a mathematician. I want to do all of these things. What am I going to do? He said, but then I went back and I researched it. I researched it. He said, and did you know that since 1900, 65% of Nobel Prize winners have believed that God was behind the foundation of the universe? That's the majority, y'all. That's the majority. It's not the, the loud majority today, but it is the majority that over in the, that's in the modern era of science. The majority of them. And so this is what he says. That statements by scientists are not necessarily statements of science. This is what got me. This is what I got wrapped up in all those years ago. That statements by scientists are not necessarily statements of science. That we take a guy like Stephen Hawking, who he, he, he makes a scientific discovery, right? He discovers something in the physical world that's brilliant and it's profound. And then what we believe because our logic is flawed and because our minds have been darkened, we believe that one brilliant man that discovered one brilliant discovery, that then everything else he says is brilliant. And everything else he says is scientific. And everything else he says is verifiable. So every other philosophical thing he says, every other thing he says about worldview, everything else he says should be taken to the bank as being verifiable scientific data. But brothers and sisters, a brilliant man that says something absurd, it is still absurd. It is still absurd. In fact, much of what the naturalistic worldview deals with is not science at all, even though it is often presented to us as science. Take the origins of the universe, for example. What is science? Science is the is, science aims to, uh, uh, to, to describe what is observed through experimentation, right? Can you observe and experiment with the origins of the universe? As far as I know, no man's ever witnessed that. As far as I know, no man's ever laid eyes on that. 
As far as I know, no person has ever seen that. And yet, what do we have? We have chapters in science books and descriptions and images and pictures and all of these things. What I'm here to tell you is that most of what we are being scared with is not science at all. It is an illusion of science. An illusion of science. Let's talk about evolution. If you're a millennial like me, probably precedes me, but I can, I, let me speak for, for my generation. If you're a millennial like me, and you grew up in the public education system, then you were indoctrinated with a theory of evolution that was typically not taught as a theory, but as a law. You were shown very beautiful pictures, which you labeled that showed the progression of man and how he evolved and, 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 and how, and you know, you, you knew exactly when the tail came off and how he stopped hunching and, you know, and like when the forehead shrunk and all that kind of stuff, right? Like, like we saw all of those things. She, uh, Richard Dawkins, the, an evolutionist, even says, you can't even begin to understand biology. You can't understand life unless you understand what it's all there for, how it arose. And that means evolution which is an interesting sentence, right? What it's all there for. That's not a scientific statement. That's a religious statement, isn't it? So, so, so we, we had all of these graphs, all of these pictures, these, these beautiful diagrams that, that would make anybody think, man, they, they've seen this stuff before. And we, we would label this stuff and get tested on all of this stuff, high school and college, you know what I never knew? They made all of it up. They made all of it up. It's all theory. They don't have a single bone to back up any of it. Not a single one, not one, not a fragment of one. It's not based on a single intermediate bone. They have what they think is the starting point and they have what they think is the end point, but they have nothing in the middle and they've, they've invented the entire centerpiece of how they picture it to come. But man, it's so attractive and the marketing is so good and it's so believable and it fits into their, their worldview so well that we have taken it hook, line, and sinker and brothers and sisters, it takes more faith to believe that than to believe there's a designer. And to believe that there is an engineer. And to believe that there is someone who men like Einstein and, and Sir Isaac Newton and the list is long, extensive, and illustrious who would say there is an intelligent being, an intelligent designer that organized and built and put together this unfathomable cosmos so that we could come together as we are. Let's talk specifics about evolution. Did you know that the odds of the smallest organism being randomly formed the right, uh, by the right alignment of, right, of the right molecules is 10 to the 340,000th uh, power? But here's what scientists, honest, this, this, is a, this, is, this is from a scientist, this is what they say. That, that with enough time, over billions of years, that the impossible becomes improbable, 
and that then the improbable becomes likely, and then likely becomes actuated. Now, follow that logic, if you would. Follow that logic. If, if, you, if, you're, if you're two-year-old, or, or and I'm sorry, if your 10-year-old came home, and, they came, and, 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 you, and on their test it was, give me a definition for nothing, the definition of nothing. And their definition was, well, over enough time, given enough, the, right, the right amount of years and the right amount of whatever, nothing will eventually, be, will eventually turn into an improbability and then it'll transform into something unlikely and then it'll be actuated into to billions and billions and billions and billions of, of complex organisms. and pe- You would say, what are you talking about, man? We would fail that student, right? Because it's illogical, it's irrational, it's implausible. I read in one book <laughs> that the odds of, of, of an amoeba, okay, an amoeba is a single cell organism, that the odds of an amoeba evolving into a tapeworm, okay? We're not exactly talking about prebiotic soup turning into human beings, okay? We're, we're talking about single cell amoeba transforming into a tapeworm. The odds of an amoeba turning into a, 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 a tapeworm, or evolving into a tapeworm over billions of years through millions of mutations is the same as if you took a typewriter, you put it in the middle of a room, you put a monkey in the room, and the monkey randomly typed on the typewriter and produced at random a perfectly punctuated, perfectly spelled rendition of Hamlet's soliloquy. But it requires no faith to believe in the naturalistic worldview. Requires no faith. And maybe in your mind, you would sit there and you would say, well, why does it matter? Could we not just say that God is behind evolution? Could we not just say that that's that's how God designed and built mankind? Of course, God can do anything that God wants to do. But according to the Bible, the special revelation that we have, we have some serious issues. Because at that point, when does, when does man become an image bearer of God? When does, soul, when does the soul enter into a man? When does, how does Romans 5 come about? When, did, when was Adam come onto the scene? If all sin came by the first Adam so that we could be redeemed by the second Adam according to Romans 5, how does that come into play? Do we lose the gospel? Do we lose the gospel? Brothers and sisters, I, I, I put before you that it matters very much. It matters very much. A lawyer who tests the logic of arguments named Philip Johnson. He tested the logic of the argument of evolution. I just want to point out four things that he found very quickly. He says, after 130 years of experimental breeding of various kinds of animals and plants, the amount of variation that can be produced, even with intentional, not random breeding, is extremely limited due to the limited range of generic uh, variation. That is, that regardless of breedings, dogs are still dogs, squirrels are still squirrels, mongoose are still mongoose, and when the specialized breeds are released back into the wild, the breed always reverts back to the original wild type. Did you hear that? Even when we're doing it on purpose. 
even when we're doing it in a laboratory. We cannot take a dog and turn it into a cat. That we can take one type of dog and kind of make it a new kind of dog. But even when we turn them back in the wild, that new kind of dog goes away. In current evolutionary arguments, the idea of survival of the fittest or natural selection is popularly thought to mean that those animals whose different characteristics give them a comparative advantage that will survive and others will die out. But in actual practice, almost any characteristic can be argued as an advantage or a disadvantage. How do we know which mutations are the strongest? The ones who survive. And the fittest animals are, in reality, the ones who produce the most offspring. Can I tell you somewhere? We are not running out of rabbits. We are not running out of rabbits. So, so, so what he's saying is, is that you can take any mutation found on any creature and you can say, yeah, that's a weakness or that's a strength. You can look at human, human beings and tell that, can't you? You can take, look at human beings and tell that, can't you? You can say, man, that guy's really fast. Yeah, but he's kind of weak, right? That guy's, that guy's really, really, uh, really smart. He's a little geeky, right? That, 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 that any, any strength has its downside. That, that the reality of natural selection is it's really just who, pro, who procreates the best, who can, who can reproduce their species at the, at the most prolific rate that, out, that outruns and outpaces the predators. Well, that seems to make sense. Seems to make sense. I think this one is a particularly damning argument against evolution. The vast and complex mutations required to produce complex organs such as an eye or a bird's wing could not have occurred in a series of tiny mutations accumulating over thousands of generations because the individual parts of the organ are useless if they are incomplete. A wasp couldn't sting, a heart couldn't beat, a bird couldn't fly, an ear couldn't hear if it didn't have all of the parts at the same time. So here's what that means. If you, if you, if you've ever put a gun together, some of you guys, I know some of you guys are really into to shooting and into guns. So if you have a rifle and you put the whole rifle together, but you don't put the bolt in the rifle, what good is the rifle? Like, like if you don't put the bolt in the rifle and there's a bear charging down at you, I don't care if you've got a 300 mag with ballistic tips in the chamber, if there's no bolt in the rifle, the rifle's got nothing to offer you, and the bear's gonna destroy you, right? Well, if, you're a, if it's a wasp, and the entire survival of the wasp species is hinged upon the stinger, and the stinger is still in process of the mutations coming together so that it will actually function, and the stinger is not yet functioning, then that entire species can't survive. That entire species can't survive. The human heart, some of you have had open heart surgery, some of you are in the medical profession, and you, much better than I, could talk about the intricacies of the human heart, and you know how complex the human heart is. If one of those valves is not fully formed yet, if over the process of the mutations, those valves and those veins and all of the, the different components of the human heart are not yet fully formed, the human can't survive. The race wouldn't make it. It took a fully formed human heart. Those things can't come together over periods of time and over billions of years. And yet the most damning argument 
of evolution has, has been, in the, it was in the day of, of Darwin and continues to be in our day, the fossil record. The fossil record. They are yet to produce a single intermediate type fossil which shows the characteristic of one species evolving into another. The only thing they can say is that it must have happened because it happened. It must have happened because it happened. And when any scientist comes to you and says it must have happened because it happened, brothers and sisters, that's not science. That's not science. So turn with me. To Genesis chapter one, as we come to a close. I want us to come back to our original question. Does science disprove the Bible? Because I want to propose to you that it's actually, in fact, quite the opposite of that. Because not only do I not want you to run away from science, brothers and sisters, especially our young brothers and sisters, I want you to run headlong into science. Headlong into science. I don't want you to be afraid of science. I don't want you to check your brain at the door. I want you to put on your mind. I want you to think deeply about the Lord and deeply about the world in which you live and watch those things harmonize together. I want, you to, I want to show you how the, the Lord brought this to be in my heart this week. Verses 27 and 28 of Genesis chapter 1. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you hear what's happening? Remember, I told you there's two kinds of revelation. There's natural, general revelation, the creation outside of you, the conscience that's inside of you. There's special revelation in which God says, this is who I am. This is who you are. And in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we have the very first occurrence of both coming together at the same time as God is making all that was. And he hits the crescendo and he says, this is man made in my image. And what does he do to man? He speaks directly to him. Special revelation. And he says, you are man made in my image. That's who you are. You have dignity like no other part of creation. You are set apart of creation. You are greater than creation. And you will rule over creation. You have dominion over creation. Go and subdue it. Go and subdue it. Go have dominion over all of it. Go, in other words, and explore it. Go and know it. Go and name every creature. Go and examine everything that you find. Go and enjoy everything that I have made. Go and see how all of it proclaims my handiwork. Go, in other words, and be a scientist. Be a good scientist. The Bible is not dismissed by science. The Bible commissions science. The Bible commissions science to the glory of God. You see, it is in the Bible, the Bible, 
the Christian worldview that we find the soil in which science is cultivated. C.S. Lewis says, men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in the lawgiver. Every great discovery, every great discovery essentially in all of modern science has happened since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the church established that all of life essentially began or began with one God who established all things with the same order and knowing that there was law and knowing that there was order and not chaos as virtually every other civilization believed that it could be studied, it could be learned, and it could be known. And knowing that, science has flourished. You see, naturalism, naturalism kills man, kills the world of its meaning, robs man of his dignity, and God of his glory. Why is there, why, why, what was the ideology behind Nazi Germany and the concentration camps and the eradication of the Jews? Natural selection carried out to its most logical end. Why in China today are, are, are babies being killed inside of their mother's wombs because of child quotas and ripped out of them? Natural selection. Why is euthanasia being propagated? Naturalism. Man is being destroyed of his unit, robbed of his dignity. A naturalist does something good, they don't even know why they're doing it. They have no moral center. And as man has been robbed of his dignity, God has been robbed of his glory. The, the creation has taken the place of the creator. But brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, when the creator is put in his rightful place and the creation in its rightful place and science is harmonized as God has intended to be, then what we are able to see is that our creator came into the midst of this creation so that man's dignity might not be robbed, but rather restored through Christ Jesus, who was God who took on human flesh and became human flesh so that all of mankind might not be destroyed of its meaning, but might be restored into being truly human and be restored in rightful relationship with his creator so that for all eternity, we might finally think totally rationally and bring glory to his name for all eternity and search this entire cosmos and see how it paints a picture of his handiwork. And so brothers and sisters, go deep into science. Go deep into the creation so that you might know the glory of your creator. Let's, talk, let's pray together this morning.